Well, good morning, uh, church. Good to see you. You who are joining us online, good morning. If I seem like I have an extra pep in my step today, it may be because of that cappuccino I had right before I walked in. Uh, but I think even more, it's about my excitement for this new series and season in the life of our church. And uh, it, as you just saw, we're uh, starting this series called Odd Couples. Let me tell you a little bit about it. When I was a kid, I used to watch this show called Odd Couple. I didn't know it at the time, but the TV show was actually based on a Broadway play by Neil Simon. And instead of telling you about it, I think I want to invest 30 seconds of your life in just seeing the intro to that old TV show. On November 13th, Felix Unger was asked to remove himself from his place of residence. That request came from his wife. Deep down, he knew she was right, but he also knew that someday he would return to her. With nowhere else to go, he appeared at the home of his friend, Oscar Madison. Several years earlier, Madison's wife had thrown him out, requesting that he never return. Can two divorced men share an apartment without driving each other crazy? It was good, I promise. And uh, so, so these two guys, Felix and Oscar. Felix, as maybe you saw from the clip, is neat and healthy and very refined and he has his own uh, set of cookware and all that. And then Oscar is sloppy and messy and loves junk food and their differences threaten to drive them crazy but somehow, in the middle of it all, they build an unlikely friendship. Well. As we launch this new ministry year, one of our strongest prayers is that God would continue to deepen our unity. We give thanks for the unity that we enjoy, uh, but we pray that God would deepen it. Now, as we're going to see in, in this message, unity is different from affinity. Affinity is we share the same language, we share the same culture, maybe we're close in age, maybe we like uh, pickleball together, maybe uh, our politics are similar, okay? That's affinity, but unity in Christ brings people who are very different from one another affinity-wise and makes them family, joins them together. And so this last summer as we were kind of praying and planning about the, 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 the year of sermons and, and grow group uh, emphasis, we, we started thinking about some of these odd couples in the pages of Scripture. And not just in the pages of Scripture, but in our life stories as well. And by the way, these odd couples are a lot more different from one another than, say, Felix and Oscar. And so we thought, wouldn't it be fun to do a series on relationships in Scripture that shouldn't work but do. And the reason they work is because of God. Wouldn't it be fun to do a series where we showcase how God's grace creates unity, right? Now, uh, now, to be really clear, when we talk about unity, we're not talking about playing nice, okay? We're actually talking about discovering a supernatural way that Christ has created for us to be different together. So in the weeks to come, we're going to look at flesh and blood examples. But think of today's sermon as kind of laying some theological groundwork for the series. Did I scare you by saying that? Uh, I, I, what I want us to see today in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, if you want to find uh, Ephesians in the New Testament, is that Christ, Christian unity is not some harebrained sociological experiment. Christian unity 
is part of the miracle that Jesus Christ accomplished through his death on the cross we just sang about and through his resurrection from the dead. And so, as you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to pick up the reading of this chapter in the middle, verse 11. Uh, We're going to talk about the whole chapter, but I want to read to you verses 11 to 22. And as I read our passage, I want you to listen for, for references to what you might call two different time stamps, okay? I want you to listen to how Paul speaks of things then, and I want you to listen to how Paul speaks of things now. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God bless the reading of his word. So did you hear the timestamps? Did you hear words like formerly and remember and at that time that pointed to a previous era and then something changed obviously because Paul switched to words like but now and consequently and no longer. So what, what's going on here? Well, I want to I wanna describe it by sketching a cycle that whether or not you know it at first, we're all familiar with and it's what I want to call the cycle of profound change. What does that mean? The cycle a profound change. Well, the simplest way to describe it is through before and after photos. Uh, I'll begin with a a negative example. Uh, uh, Several years ago, a devastating hurricane hit the Bahamas. And, uh, And there are photos that show the before, and you see all these beautiful condos and beaches and the beautiful blue water, and you see uh, all these, I guess, uh, um, umbrellas on, on the beach. And then this is the after, just gutted, right? Just devastated. So what's happened? You had a before, and then you had some kind of catalytic event, and then you had an after. Maybe similar if you've ever, um, uh, you know, had your car in an accident, and then you had that picture of your car when you first got it, <clears throat> and then the car when it got T-boned, right? And it's that before 
and after. But there's also kind of a positive sense of the cycle of profound change. Maybe uh, you hobbled along on bad knees for a while and then you got a, a knee replacement surgery and, and now you can walk much better. So there was a then, there was something catalytic like a, a hurricane or surgery, and then there is a now. So, so I want you to see the cycle. Then, catalyst, now, okay? What, what life was like before, this catalytic thing that happened, either negative or positive, and, that, and then what life is like now. So why all this talk of then and catalyst and now? Well, the answer to that question is tied to this little mini epiphany that I had as I was reading Ephesians 2. I'm, not, I'm certain I'm not the first person to ever have this epiphany, but it just kind of dawned on me in a way that it never had before. Now, just a little bit of insider baseball about preaching for me at least. Sometimes, you know, I mean, I like to look in depth at every verse. And so what that means, because you don't have unlimited time, is you either have to limit the verses, uh, you know, or you have to go less in depth. And I had a big passage, 11 to 22. And so sometimes I'll just kind of build a fence around those verses and I'll, I'll think, oh, I don't want to look at what comes before. I don't want to look at com what comes after. But fortunately, on this particular day, the Holy Spirit had me look at the whole chapter of Ephesians 2. Uh, the, the, the second half that I just read you, but also the first half, verses 1 through 10. And I noticed the same cycle of profound change in both halves. Um, and, and so I, I want to I just point this out to you. If you have um, a digital Bible, you can scroll with me. If you have an old school Bible, just take your finger and kind of start at verse 1 of chapter 2, okay? As you look at that, you see all the past tense stuff. You were dead in your transgressions, in which you used to live. All of us also lived this way at one time. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Past tense, past tense, past tense. But then in verses four and five, a catalyst takes place. And that catalyst is what Christ does for us. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So Christ making us alive, that's that hurricane or reverse hurricane, right? That is, that's Christ blowing into our lives with love and mercy and grace. And that's what saves us. Paul's really clear about this, right? He says that you, you didn't save yourself. You were dead. <laughs> you can't lift yourself up out of a casket when you're dead. What, the, the one who saved you, the one who made you alive is Jesus Christ. It is by grace you're saved, Paul goes on to say. Uh, it's, it's, it's grace through faith. It is not of works. And then the goal of that, the kind of the new now we see is in verse 10. Verse 10 says, so now because of grace, we're God's handiwork. We're a new creation. We're created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now that's beautiful, isn't it? That, that, that is the heart of the gospel. Christ has done this singular work in every single one of us who've reached out to him in faith and received his grace. He has made us alive. But guess what? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that his grace not only does a singular work in individuals, but we also discover his grace does a plural work in us as his body. Have you ever thought about the fact that often in church we neglect the plural work 
of grace. I, I feel like <clears throat> so many of the sermons I've heard in my life, and unfortunately, so many of the sermons I've preached in my life, have been focused exclusively on the individual work of God, as if you were the only person sitting in the pew on that particular Sunday. It's almost like I preached to Robinson Crusoe. I've, I've preached to castaways uh, all alone on a desert island. But the only problem is you're not a castaway, are you? You, you, you don't live on a deserted island. Uh, you know, I, I'm a part of a family. I'm a part of a church staff. I'm a part of groups of friends. I'm a part of this church. I'm a part of the kingdom of God. And so Paul, I think, doesn't want me to shortchange the goodness of God's grace because Paul wants me to say that, that Jesus didn't just save me. Jesus saved us. And, and, and part of that saving work is Jesus creates these odd couples. Jesus makes the two groups one. Now in the historical context of Ephesians 2, 2,000 years ago, you had these two groups of people that had zero affinity with one another, okay? The Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul begins by addressing Gentiles who have come to Christ, Gentile Christians. And he talks about the then before they, they came to Christ. So what was life like for these Gentiles before Jesus blew into their lives? Turns out it was pretty dismal. They lacked so many of the spiritual advantages that the Jewish Christians have had. Uh, Paul says in verse 12, remember that at that time, right, before you received this gift of grace. At that time, you were, you were separate from Christ. You were, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to all the covenants of the, of the Old Testament, the covenants of promise. Ultimately, you were without hope and without God in the world. Paul says at that time, you didn't know, you didn't know who Jesus was. You didn't know who Moses was. You didn't have a Bible. You didn't know the covenants that God had made through Noah and Abraham and Moses and, and David. Spiritually speaking, you lacked hope. And you lacked a vital relationship with God. Pretty hopeless, right? But then Paul says, now the hurricane is blown through. A good hurricane. Now a catalytic force has come into your life. And so verse 13 renders it this way. But now in Christ Jesus, you, and remember he's speaking to a group of people who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the cross. You see the pattern? Individually, you were dead in your sin, but now you've been made alive in Christ. Corporately is the body, plural speaking. You were living apart from the people of God, but now Christ's death on the cross like a magnet has brought all these different kinds of people together. So the question is, what does this after picture look like for us, what's the new plural reality for us? What has Christ done not just for me, what has Christ done for us? How does God bring odd couples like Gentiles and Jews, sworn enemies, together? Well, I love this part. Jesus actually works in destructive and constructive ways. We don't usually think about Jesus using destructive means, but that's what the text says, so, so let's look at it. First of all, um, uh, when, when, just a little bit of background. When you think about these two groups, one scholar, Eric Lincoln, has said that the enmity 
between Jew and Gentile in the first century was one of the fundamental divisions in the first century world. Maybe it would be similar to kind of Palestine-Israeli today. Uh, Jews hated Gentiles. Most Gentiles were not wild about Jews, thought they were weird. Uh, The pious Jew thanked God every day that God didn't make him a Gentile. That's how, how much they how much enmity there was. In fact, some of the rabbis celebrated the ceremonial law, kosher diet and Sabbath rules, circumcision as we read in our text, that these things acted like a fence. And this fence kind of separated Jew from Gentile. These aspects of the ceremonial law kept Gentiles on the out. It kept Jews inside. It was a holy fence of separation between Jew and Gentile. In fact, in the temple in Jerusalem in that day, there was a literal fence, not just a fence, there was a literal wall that separated the court of Gentile kind of God-fearers who were interested in the Hebrew God. It, It separated them from the more inner court of the Jews. It was, a, it was a literal stone wall. It had an inscription in two languages, just to make sure everybody was clear, Latin and Greek. And the, the inscription was, no one of another nation, read Gentile, to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. <laughs> uh, that's pretty plain, isn't it? There's a fence There's a wall, Gentiles out there, Jews in here. It'll cost you your life if you try to jump over the wall. Pretty serious, right? Talk about division. Talk about enmity. But look what Jesus does in verse 14. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace who has made the two groups, Gentile and Jew, one, and get this, destructive power, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus goes up to that barrier and he kicks it over. He knocks over the fence. One commentator I read said that the cross creates community. The cross destroys the barriers that separate former enemies. The cross makes friends and brothers and sisters who live at peace in the peace and presence of Christ. And so the result is for that church in Ephesus that it's no longer, okay, Gentile Christians over here and Jewish Christians over there. It's no longer Hatfields and McCoys inside the church. There's no more fence. There's no more barrier. So what does Paul say in verse 19 to these Gentile Christians? He says to them, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household. What has Christ done? He's taken strangers and he's made them family. Christ has reconciled us to God, but he's also reconciled us to one another. Christ has come along and knocked over fences, he's knocked over dividing walls, and he's put bridges in their place. Now, as I was preparing for this sermon, one of the 
I don't know if one of, if one of the benefits or one of the, the, the non-benefits of preaching as long as I've preached is that sometimes you look back on things you preached before and you go, oh man, I, I could have I been clearer, I could have been more helpful, uh, that was sloppy. And, and I think, you know, I've been excited about the, this, this teaching and this text for a long time, but I look back on some of the sermons I've preached about it in the past and I don't think I've been as clear as I could be. And so I want to be... Uh, where I was maybe a little sloppy in the past, I want to be really clear in, in saying this. There is absolutely nothing wrong with affinity friendships. I mean, we celebrate all kind of friendships. And so, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with, with deep friendships which, with, between people who are similar to us. I mean, Peter and Andrew were friends with James and John, and those four guys were very similar. All fishermen all kind of grew up in the same area, right? Uh, so many of our friendships begin with affinity, don't they? Maybe we room together in college, or we live <clears throat> next door to each other, or, or we root for the same sports teams, or our kids play sports together. That's awesome. I want to be real clear in a way that I have in the past. We celebrate friendships of all kind, <laughs> guilt-free, okay? The only problem is when we lock ourselves in affinity, when we lock ourselves in affinity and fail to experience the true miracle of Christ in a plural sense. One of the church's earliest theologians, I mean, he, he emerged right as the apostles were kind of dying off, and his name was Clement of Alexandria, and he coined a phrase I absolutely love. He says, it's, it's no longer kind of Gentiles over here and Jews over here. He says, in Christ, we're a third race. I love that. We're a third race. He took the two groups, he made them one. He made them something new in an amazing act of love and grace and power. He melded us together. And I want you to hear in the time that remains why this is such amazing good news. Whenever you experience the unity of Jesus Christ with someone socially different from you, you are seeing the miracle of the third race. And this, I want to suggest to you, is a source of profound joy. In other words, I don't want you to leave this room today without hearing why we on staff are so absurdly excited about this. The invitation in this series on the unity of Jesus Christ is an invitation to joy. We are inviting you to experience a deeper level of joy. Now, why is that? Well, first, when we experience the dynamics of Ephesians 2, right, what that makes us, first of all, is witnesses to a miracle. It sounds like I'm overstating it, but, I, but I'm not. I want you to see this for yourself in verse 15. What was Christ doing? What was Christ's purpose? His purpose was to create. When Jesus creates something new, that's a miracle. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace. Now we often teach and preach this as individuals, right? We, we quote uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. We, we teach this and preach this individually, but it's also true of us in a plural sense. You, church, are a new creation. You are a new kind of social gathering with Jesus as the superglue. Shouldn't work. 
Sociali sociologically, it should not work. Some of us make very odd couples with one another, don't we? But in Christ, it works. I once heard a theologian, Scott McKnight, lecture on this, and I thought he used a great illustration. It's a culinary illustration, which means tastes, and so the illustration might not work for some of you, but I'm gonna try it out anyway. He talked about salads, believe it or not. And I'm embellishing his illustration here a little bit, but have you ever been to that chicken fried steak place and you order chicken fried steak and mashed potatoes and gravy and green beans and then you think, well, I ought to be healthy. And so you say, uh, can I have a side salad with that? And they look at you funny, you know, and then um, you say, um, what kind of dressings do you have? And they say, ranch. And that's it, right? And, uh, and so, yeah, I'll take that. And so what, what comes back? A bowl with only iceberg lettuce and a huge smattering of ranch dressing on top. Now, if you love that kind of salad, forgive me. You can still be a Christian and love that kind of salad. I don't want you to hear me saying opposite, okay? It's kind of boring, though. Scott McKnight says the best kinds of salads, in his opinion, are when you gather lots of different ingredients. You got spinach and kale and chard and tomatoes and carrots and red pepper and purple cabbage and, and different kind of nuts and dried berries. And then you sprinkle that Pecorino Romano on top. And then you pour the finest of olive oil, which doesn't smother the taste, hide the taste, but kind of brings out the individual taste of all those ingredients. Now, whether or not you agree with me on salad, okay, he says the church is designed to be that second example. Diverse people anointed with the oil, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, each contributing uniqueness to the body of Christ. That's a miracle, right? That's a miracle. That's the creative work Christ desires to do with us. We get to be witnesses to a miracle when we experience the unity of Christ across all different kinds of boundaries and barriers. But there's a second thing that brings me joy as well, and that is you and I get to be signposts to our neighbors. Signposts to our community. Signposts to our world. What do I mean by that? Well, I think people are drawn to the miraculous. I think people are drawn to the creative work of God. And I want you to think about it. What would you say is one of the biggest social problems our community has been dealing with over the last few years? Wouldn't you say it's loneliness and isolation? I mean, I think so many people, especially after pandemic restrictions, are, are starving for deep, unifying relationships with one another. And maybe they feel like so many of the places they go to, they don't fit. They're like, you know, kale in the middle of an iceberg lettuce salad, right? But then they see what Jesus is up to. They see how Jesus makes odd couples into beautiful gatherings. They see that Jesus comes along and he kicks over social barriers. He knocks down dividing walls and he creates something new. He creates the church, the body of Christ, and something inside them is hungry for it. Especially now. 
Because if anything, what have the last few years done? The last few years have built more and more and more dividing walls, haven't they? No show of hands here. But I bet there are people that you used to have a good relationship with, but in some of the cultural divides of the last few years, either you've stopped speaking to them or they've stopped speaking to you or both. No show of hands. No show of hands. But I wonder how many of you have had friends or family unfriend you because of politics or yard signs or flags or bumper stickers or Facebook posts. Now, I don't want to be, please hear me, I'm not trying to be overly idealistic about the church. We are a collection of sinful people, to to be sure. But don't you think folks are starving for unity that instead of build more fences, creating shrinking smaller groups of tribes, don't you think people are starving for a unity that knocks down barriers? Verse 14 says that's what Jesus does. He himself is our peace. We we have a chance to share with our neighbors the kind of peace that you can't get anywhere else. And it's not because of you and it's not because of me. It's because of Jesus. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. The, The world creates counterfeit peace. Jesus gives authentic peace. And we live in that peace. Now, maybe you're thinking, Larry, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon like this before. Um, I don't think I grew up hearing sermons like this, to be honest with you. But I can remember, I was about 15 years ago, I was blessed to be on a study break. I was taking a class uh, on Ephesians. I was at Regent College in Vancouver. And I studied a man with, uh, whose name was Bruce Milne. And his class, and actually I got to have coffee with him as well, but his class had a really big impact on me. And, and Bruce Milne stood out to me, our, our instructor, for several reasons. One, he was a Scotsman. And I'll admit it, I love to listen to a Scottish accent. We have some Scots here in our church, and I just, I, I'll talk to him about anything just to hear them say world instead of world or whatever. I just love it. But, but, but even more so, I was, I was impressed because he was a Baptist pastor. Uh, he pastored First Baptist Church of Vancouver. And he'd been a seminary professor, and, and he, he, he had this vision. You know, Vancouver uh, is a multicultural city, and, and Bruce Milne had a passion that his church would mirror the racial and cultural makeup of the city. By the way, and it was not at all because multicultural was this hot, you know, secular new trend. By the way, I think multicultural, uh, the secular trend was, was borrowed from scripture, okay? And the church has often abandoned it, but that, I won't get off into that sermon. But, but God allowed uh, Bruce Milne to see a church that, that no longer just reached to kind of one narrow demographic, but started to reach out to all kinds of people. And, and he said in class one day, he said, you want to know one of the most beautiful moments I ever had in my ministry? He said it was a baptism service. He baptized 13 people, and he later, he went back and he kind of thought about who he baptized. He said on that particular day, baptizing 13 people, he baptized a lady hairdresser. He baptized a member of the Crow tribe, uh, who's the chief of the Crow tribe, and his wife. He, He baptized a PE teacher. He baptized a hospital psychiatrist. He baptized a former call girl. 
He baptized a homemaker from the country of Holland. He, he baptized a converted biker from Aberdeen, Scotland. He baptized an investment banker from Hong Kong. He baptized an ER doc. He baptized an 11-year-old child from Hawaii. He baptized a science major from the University of British Columbia. And my favorite, he baptized a trapeze artist and tightrope walker from Hungary. He said to the mayor of Vancouver once, can you think of any other group in the heart of the city of Vancouver that has the diversity that we have? Does that not say something about Jesus Christ? And then he told his church, the best evangelist in this church is this church. Let me say that again. The best evangelist in this church is this church. What does he mean? He means that when an increasingly global world sees people of all ages, cultures, races, demographics coming together in the peace of Christ, it's a powerful witness to the world that Jesus takes those who are far away from God and far away from one another and brings us together in Christ. Only Jesus can do this kind of miracle. Only Jesus brings peace and joy. Only Jesus can turn the before into the after, the then into the now. And friends, my prayer is do it again, do it again, do it again. Let's pray. Lord, you are amazing. In your love, through your blood, through the cross and resurrection, you become our peace, individually and also as a group. You are the glue that holds us together. And Lord, you have given us the privilege of being a part of a new creative work, not just in our hearts, but also in our church. And Lord Jesus, you want to show the world, not perfect people because we're all sinners, but you want to show the world what your perfect grace can do when you create families. And so Lord, we do pray that you would do it again, that you would do it in our hearts, that you would do it through the power of your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.